So today is uh, part two of a series that we're doing entitled For the Least of These. And uh, these the sermon series is based off of a book by Nathan Brown, um, which is entitled For the Least of These. And I was reading the uh, reading through this book um, through the times of the bushfire and thought, you know, like it's, it's such an appropriate time to talk about um, not just helping the poor and helping those who are suffering, but also about social justice and the idea of justice in scripture. And so um, today is part two, and part two is entitled um, Living Out Justice as a Church, Living Out Justice as a Church. And let me just make sure that this all works. Okay, yep. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, cool. All right, so in review from last... Uh, the last part one of this series, uh, we covered three main to- uh, three main ideas. The first idea is creation is a premise for justice, and as we are to value uh, we are to value that which God has created, as He is the Creator and we are followers of Him. Justice is more than just calling out injustice. Point two, it's about a commitment to restoration. And point three, we are given a time and space for living out justice in the Sabbath as it gives us time and space for all to gather as equals in a community of faith. So today, I want to start about, I want to start today's talk by talking about worship. That might be an interesting place to start as we are talking about justice, but nevertheless, uh, I think there are some important lessons about worship and this idea of justice. So church is usually where we come to seek God. Church is called a house of prayer. Uh, It's called a place of worship. And the question that I want to kind of explore is, what is it about worship that leads us to God? How are we supposed to worship God? And I don't know for how many of you, uh, I don't know how many of you remember the 90s where there was this huge thing called the worship wars. And, uh, this was very much felt in the U.S. I'm not sure what it was like here in Australia, but there was this large debate, and the reason why is because in the 90s, Hillsong started to become this music and worship phenomena, and the melodies and instrumentation drew the attention of the young, and the churches and churches all over the world started adding guitars, drums, and electric pianos to their worship services. For those who were used to hymns and organs and pianos, there was kind of like this response and this dialogue about standards of worship thus ensued, and hence we have this thing called the worship wars. Now, you may be wondering, well, Roy, what do you think? And my thoughts on this whole worship war thing is, I think there's music that I like, I think there's music that I don't like, and God seems to use them both. So that's basically my stance. Now, in times of the Old Testament, much of the religion surrounding Israel revolved around worship. And in times of difficulty or spiritual stagnation, there would be calls to revival. There would be this sense of urgency and to be more fervent in worship and to refocus life on God. So in times of Isaiah the prophet, the nation were oppressed The people organized themselves to worship, they read scripture, they began fasting, they prayed regularly in hopes that God would bring about revival and then deliverance. And what happens is, as they put into practice these rigorous forms of worship, 
nothing happens. God is simply silent. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 58, and we're going to look at a few verses together. So Isaiah chapter 58, and for those of you who are using the World Changer Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to page, once I get there, page 597, page 597. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 58. So in Isaiah chapter 58, I'm going to start us off in verse 3. And you're going to see the people calling out to God, and then we're going to read God's response to the people. So Isaiah 58 verse 3, the people say, We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. And so the people are kind of wondering what the point and what the purpose of their worship is if there's no result. So then Isaiah reports to them, and if you go, if you continue on to verse 4, and this is kind of like the voice of God coming through uh, the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says, verse 4, and I'm just going to skip down from verse 4 to verse 9 and just kind of skim through it. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? Actually, I'm just going to read through the whole passage. (laughs) No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then... When you call the Lord, excuse me, then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. <clears throat> if you go on to the end of the chapter, the Sabbath is mentioned. The Sabbath is kind of this day of worship, and it's connected to this idea of practicing justice and relieving oppression. And in this whole chapter, the idea of service to the oppressed is not just a nice thing to do. It's a way to worship God. And in this case, it is the way God wants to be worshipped. In God's view, he prefers these acts over the traditional religious practices, especially if that worship is conducted while ignoring the needs of others. Here are a couple other Old Testament examples of worship and relieving the oppressed. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12, there's a section that talks about tithing. And in the Old Testament, tithing is a part of worship. And notice what is written here. It says, every third year, you must offer a special tithe of your crops. In this year of the special tithe, you must give your tithes to the Levites 
foreigners, orphans, and widows so that they will have enough to eat in your towns. Now, I've always had this preconceived idea of what tithing is about. It's about, uh, it's about giving of our resources so that God's work can go forward. And as a pastor, tithing is something that keeps me employed. And so whenever I think of tithing, it's always like it's for the pastors. But when I read, uh, this is the first time reading through Deuteronomy and catching this verse where God is like, tithing is to relieve the oppressed. And I just, I've never thought of that. And so when God looks for worship, it is always, con- oh, I shouldn't say always, it's often connected to this idea of helping those who are suffering. Here's another verse, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. I hate all your show and preference, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. See, this kind of worship is something that flows outward. Worship is not something that's inwardly focused, but something that brings a blessing to all those around the worshipers of God and to the outside community. So in James chapter 1, verse 27, James writes, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. There's an Adventist theologian by the name of Francis Nichols, and he writes, The true purpose of religion is to release men from their burdens of sin, to eliminate intolerance and oppression, and to promote justice, liberty, and peace. The lesson of Isaiah chapter 58 is that our spiritual renewal is not about us. Religion is not about our holiness The key to renewal is in helping and caring for others. And in doing so, we find God. Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. And it's used around 80 times in the first four books of the New Testament. Jesus is the only one who uses this title in the New Testament. And Jesus is the only one who uses this title in reference to himself. So the idea of Son of Man... Immediately, you just think Jesus. Now, Jesus certainly believed that he was the son of God, but he also calls himself the son of man. And there's this special relationship he wants to build with humanity as he identifies himself as one who is human. You know, if I were Jesus and I wanted people to believe that I was the savior and the Messiah, the son of God, I would just call myself savior or messiah or i would add the title of divinity to my name but the majority of his ministry he identifies as one of us why would the infinite want to be seen as finite in matthew chapter one we're introduced to the birth of jesus and as the angel uh, approaches mary and tells her of uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy in isaiah um The angel writes, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the advent of Christ reveals the desire of God to be connected with his creation. So when we are given the gift of God's presence, and we are confronted by the needs of humanity, we are to look at humanity through the eyes of God. 
God's greatest desire is to be with humanity. So we look out and we see ah, God is there. It's impossible to separate our expression of love for God and love for humanity. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, we're going to look at verses 36 to 40. We're looking at page 792. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, and I'll read through this passage with you. Page 792. It reads, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Notice here, when Jesus talks about what it means to be faithful to God, those two concepts are mentioned Ellen White was this pioneer of the Adventist church, and she wrote in the book Desire of Ages, his followers are not to feel themselves detached from the perishing world around them. They are a part of the great web of humanity, and heaven looks upon them as brothers to sinners as well as to saints. The fallen, the erring, and the sinful, Christ's love embraces, and every deed of kindness done to uplift a fallen soul Every act of mercy is accepted as done to him. For me, this quote is powerful because it says that the work of providing relief is not to be given only to those whom we think are worthy. It's to be given to those whom we think are unworthy. And that's the greatest challenge. I think there are genuine challenges in making a commitment to change injustice and inequality. <clears throat> I think it can come across as overly pious and overly simple to say, let's go change the world, because the reality is that there are challenges to creating change, especially when it comes to inequality. There are systems and people put in place who, who are, whose primary interest is themselves. I think there are questions that everybody asks when it comes to helping out. There's a question of, will the resources that I give create lasting change? to those, or excuse me, <clears throat> will the resources that I give create lasting change or will it be wasted? The powers that be will not allow the change that needs to happen anyway, so maybe it's best to just leave things as is. How do I know that the help that I give is helpful? What if the good that I do makes things worse? I think all these things are legitimate concerns and there are real challenges to implementing change. Um, on Netflix, there's this series called uh, Understanding Bill Gates' Mind. I'm just curious, did any, has anyone seen it? Okay. I, so Bill Gates is someone who I kind of like, I was like, man, this guy is incredible because he does the corporate thing, makes his money, and then commits his life to creating change. And then, of course, on the news, it's kind of like he's friends with Jeffrey Epstein, which is like, uh, uh, anyway. But I'm going to focus on the good things that he's done, right? So... He's kind of one of the things that the, the series highlights is his commitment to, um, to 
provide energy, cheap energy to the world, cheap, reliable energy to the world. And the challenge with renewable energy is that it requires more energy to create renewable energy than the renewable energy creates, if that makes sense. So his solution is nuclear energy. And this is really interesting because generally when we think of nuclear energy, we don't think of clean, cheap energy. We think of danger. We think of explosions. And you kind of walk with him in this documentary as he, as he builds this team and creates this technology that can produce nuclear energy safely. And as they're in production, the earthquake happens, the tsunami hits Japan, and then their nuclear power plant goes on meltdown. And he's kind of like, oh, no, because he's creating all these pitches. Hey, I just, I'm creating uh, nuclear, I'm producing nuclear energy safely, and it's just the earthquake happens. Time passes by, and uh, they've, they're, they're ready to produce uh, these, these um, effective nuclear power plants. And the cheapest way to produce them is by going to China. But then Donald Trump becomes president, and then the trade war happens, and he's no longer able to manufacture these power plants. And, then, and basically, the, the, the documentary stops there. And so... As the reporter kind of talks to Bill Gates, he asks him, hey, how do you, how do you handle your emotions and your, and your motivation in the midst of these challenges? Like, what, what in your mind thinks, let's just keep pressing on, even though you have been limited not by time, not by resources, not by the ability to actually do what you've set out to do, but by people. What do you do? And his response is, you just keep pushing on. Because eventually, you'll be able to create change. And it's just this incredible mindset to this difficult, complex problem that he doesn't have a solution for. There's another story of a gentleman by the name of Troy Fitzgerald. And he's a professor at a university in Walla Walla, which is in Washington State in the U.S. And he has these students and he kind of encourages them you know you guys have time and you have resources there are public elementary public schools right across the street and they have huge needs what would it be like if we went and tried to help and so the students agree all right let's gather ourselves together they go across the street and they start tutoring the kids they start reading with the kids and they find out that this school is heavily heavily underfunded and the reason why the city is unable to raise money or excuse me the reason why the schools are underfunded is because the city is unable to raise its municipality municipality bond. Excuse me. And if you want to know what that is, Sue or Ben can probably help you. (laughs) But from what I gather, it's a kind of property tax for funding schools. Now, on one hand, they're unable to raise the money for this bond. And on the other hand, a high percentage of the families in that community are Seventh-day Adventists. And what happens is the Seventh-day Adventist families send their kids to private school, to the Seventh-day Adventist school. And so what it does is it drains the public school enrollment. They're not able to get funding, and they're not able to raise money for these bonds. And so here are these Adventist uni students, and they're kind of like, hey, we're kind of the reason why this school is struggling, so what do we do? And so over a 16-month period, the students go out and they knock on doors, and they start talking to people in the community. They start raising awareness They put on T-shirts that um, have banners that point people to websites. And what happened was as they campaigned, um, they went to the city council. And as they raised awareness, the city council voted, and they voted in the bond. 
And over a period of time, those students were able to bring in funding. They were to get community members to invest in their own time and in their own energy to help raise these kids so that they could have a good education. So Troy Fitzgerald, this professor, kind of calculates. He's like, I wonder how much money we've cost this school system over this period of time that we've kind of pulled these students out of these public schools. And he calculated, man, we cost these schools $46 million. It's amazing that these students and this professor sat down, came up with a plan, got to know the people in the community and what their needs were, and implemented that, time, uh, implemented that plan. And, and, and it took several years to actually get that school back on its feet. But what they did paved the way for the future generation. You know, the Adventist church has always been a part, or been active in social justice. <clears throat> Many of the early Adventists were involved in abolitionist activity when it was illegal to do so. When the American Civil War broke out, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was not yet officially founded, but it nevertheless became known as the Peace Church, opposing the war while seeking an end to slavery at the same time. The early Adventist Church founded ministries that focused on education, health, and concern for the poor and well-being of of the wider humanity. The pioneers of this church laid a foundation for this next generation to build on. Ken Weissma writes about the difference between the church gathered and the church scattered. And I think understanding this paradigm helps, um, helps us think about why it is that it's so easy to become inward-focused as opposed to outward-focused. The church gathered is the church that exists for a few hours of corporate worship each week. It's what we are doing today right now. The church scattered is a church that responds to Jesus' call to be a light to the world, to be salt that covers the earth, to preserve. Weissma writes, for many of us, our intentional focus on God and his purposes happened during church. But Isaiah 58 seems to be suggesting that God is more concerned about how we spend our scattered time than our gathered time. The real impact of church will be felt, for better or worse, where it connects to the messiness of the remaining 166 hours of the week. Our faith should matter most when we are not in church. Notice what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says. And I'm just going to highlight a certain bit. It says, let us not neglect our meeting together. In other words... Yes, participate in the church gathered. But then it also says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And that's the idea of the church scattered. In Brisbane, there's this church called the Eight Miles Plain Seventh-day Adventist Church. They participated in these ADRA English classes for Iranian and Syrian refugees. And the group kind of got to know uh, the, the, the refu- or excuse me, the church came and participated and started getting to know the refugees bit by bit. And um, one church member particularly connected to one, uh, one gentleman and gave him a job. As he continued to get to know him and spend time with him, he kind of asked them, so why have you come to, uh, what brings you to this address center and how is it interacting with, with Christians because you are not Christian? 
And these refugees kind of say, well, you guys are vegetarian, you don't drink alcohol, and that's more consistent with our lifestyle, and so we feel comfortable. Well, as time passed by and the relationship grew, the man's wife had a miscarriage. And as she was in the hospital, the man and his family went to visit um, this man's wife. They continued to get to know them. And as they got to know their housing situation, they realized this is not really a livable condition. Why don't you move into, ho- move into our home and we'll take care of you while, while you look for better housing. So this man organizes his church and they start lobbying the government and they start talking about the poor housing conditions and they start providing help and support for these individuals. The church also gathered around and they sponsored education for different children in the community and provided them sponsorship to different Adventist schools. They provided consistent employment by opening up opportunities at the aged care facilities, and they basically employed other refugees who, had, um, who they got in touch with. The pastor and his wife went one step further, and they traveled to Iran to visit the families of the refugees that they had gotten to know. And the reality was the refugees are never allowed to go back home. And so they went and they got to know their families to communicate to them they're being taken care of, they're living a good life, but there still are challenges. Today, these new Iranian members of the Eight Mile Plain Seventh-day Adventist Church are linking the church with other members of the refugee community. And I just kind of think it's so amazing that here's this church that is communicating to these refugees, though you are being told you will never be a citizen of Australia, you belong to a broader eternal community. And I share this story not to be political or even say, even to say, let's do... Um, Let's do justice so people will join the church. Uh, I just think it's better to be kind for the sake of being kind. But I just want to show here's one church that practiced this call to provide care for those who are in need. John Stott in his book, The Christian uh, Christian Mission in the Modern World, draws this important distinction between justice and evangelism. And I think this one story can trigger a couple discussions. One is, should we alleviate the suffering of others and expect something in return? Like, hey, we're Adventists. We'll provide you help. By the way, want to become Adventists? And he just, I like how he, how he talks about this concept. But John Stott dismisses the idea that social action should be used as a mere means to evangelism. He is warmer to the understanding of doing justice as a manifestation of evangelism, but he feels that this fails on the test of true love and compassion that should expect nothing in return. I want to close this morning's talk by introducing two ministries. One is called um, the Micah Project. And I like this because my son's name is Micah. And the the name Micah or the prophet Micah comes from this time where there's such darkness in Israelites' history and there's just no hope. And God calls Micah to be this light to proclaim justice. And so there's this verse in Micah 6, 8 where um, there's this call for justice. Anyway, the Micah Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing services and opportunities in the community to create justice and respond to injustice, particularly here in Australia. And so if anything in this message has kind of struck a chord, this might be a website that you might be interested in checking out. There's another ministry. It's ADRA, 
this is a branch of our particular church, and ADRA is committed to providing relief, um, whether it's uh, to people who are in need or to respond to uh, moments of disaster. So when the bushfires happened, there was a, a significant number of volunteers who organized themselves very quickly, and they were able to provide relief. And um, whether it was bedding or, or, or um, food or, um, or finances, they're they actually still working uh, right now in that space. Uh, our local church is also going to um, open up a ADRA ministry. And what I mean by open up a ADRA ministry is we've selected an ADRA coordinator. And basically, once a month, we're going to gather goods for people who are in need here in this city. And so what we're going to be doing once a month is once we've gathered those items, we'll go walking through the city and we'll try and get to know those people who are on the streets. And so if you are interested in participating and joining, um, feel free and chat with me and we'd love to have you uh, be a part of that team. I hope that as you consider these things today and as the day rolls on and as the week rolls on, that um, you would be challenged to look around to the needs around you and be that light to those people. And may you see God... um, working in your life and in the lives of others. May God bless you. Father God, we come before you today. And Father, as you have given us grace, as you have given us freedom and salvation, may we be able to pass that on to those who who need it, who are in need. May you give us eyes to see the needs of others. May you break down the barriers of bias. May you give us creativity, innovation, and motivation to go and... um, Be that light to the community around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.